This is a Federal News Network podcast. One of the most annoying and delay-inducing procedures in airport passenger screening is shoe removal. Now researchers at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory have developed, or in the midst of commercializing, a way to scan shoes still on their owner's feet. For more, we turn to PNNL electrical engineer Mark Jones. Mr. Jones, good to have you on. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, of course, I am pre, so I don't have to take off my shoes. But the rest of the huddled masses do, and it does take a long time. And TSA does complain about every millisecond adds up to the end of the line. So tell us what you're working on here exactly. What is it about shoes that require unique engineering to see through? That's a good question. So the goal of the shoe scanner, of course, was to develop technology that would allow us to keep our shoes on at the airport security checkpoints. That's the main issue for travelers, as you know. And we would like to speed up that process and reduce wait times, improving the overall passenger experience. So our system is based on the same millimeter wave technology that's used in the airport body scanners. But in this case, we stand on a low-profile platform. And then the data is collected by antennas underneath that platform. Well, it sounds like this is more of a mechanical engineering job than an electrical engineering one. Yes, it's actually both. So it requires the multidisciplinary team, and that's who developed it here at the laboratory. We have electrical engineers, microwave engineers, antenna engineers, mechanical engineers, software engineers. So it's really a nice example of a multidisciplinary problem to solve. Let me just ask you an amateur engineer's technical question. When you walk into one of those booths and something moves around you or whatever, you're at some distance from the source of the energy that is looking through you. When you're standing on something, was there a challenge in the contact aspect of it to disperse the radiation such that you could see the hidden knife or whatever might be down in a shoe? Maybe Maxwell Smart had a phone down in there. Yes. That's before yeah, your time. The, but The shoe scanner is a much different problem in terms of complexity. So for the body scanners that scan around you, obviously those are intended to look through the clothing and to detect objects that are underneath the clothing. For the shoe scanner, we have to couple very closely to get the energy into the shoes and the multiple layers that make up the shoe and the tread patterns, uh, anything else that may be in ordinary shoes. So, yes, it's a much more complex problem. And we wanted to uh, extend the technology that we had developed for the body scanning application to see if it was applicable for commonly worn types of footwear. Plus, with people standing on it, some people are heavy, some are light. And so there's different amounts of pressure on top of this thing, plus the sheer number of people stepping over it. There's a kind of a mechanical strength and durability factor. Is that part of the work that you're doing also? Uh, Yes, that was very much a part of the initial studies where we evaluated different types of interfaces for the footwear scanning layer for the antennas to be able to see through a a microwave transparent layer, but also evaluate different options that would have mechanical rigidity and structural strength. And I guess the other implication of this, again, from an engineering standpoint, is that whatever equipment they were using to examine other things somehow could not be rejiggered to be able to see down into shoes, could it? That's right. This requires, yes, a unique system that would look up into the bottom of the shoe so that we can understand anything that's concealed within the shoe, any modifications that may be happening there or concealed items. I guess at that point, it becomes a matter of training because some people wear shoes with steel toes in them occasionally to the airport. I don't know why they would, but they do. Yeah, that's correct. And our sponsor, the Department of Homeland Security, they commissioned a survey of the traveling public 
to study the behavior and to understand what types of shoes are worn in the airports today. And from that research, we found that most people were very agreeable and willing to modify their behavior to use this type of screening system. And in fact, do tests show that it can save time of people in line? Uh, Yes, we expect it to save time because you don't have to take your shoes off for most of the types of shoes that we've seen. So it can really speed people through, and the longer the line, the more the effect is each interval of time that is shaved off the process. That's right. I think we're estimating around 15 to 20 percent of time saved. We're speaking with Mark Jones. He's a chief engineer at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, part of the Energy Department. And how do you go about engineering this thing? Do you build plastic prototypes? I mean, it sounds like a fun thing to try to engineer. So we started with a laboratory prototype system that we built here in our laboratory, and it was an engineering study. So we were able to uh, use that system to understand which types of antennas to use, all kinds of variables there from an engineering standpoint. So that was our first attempt to study that. Once we did that very quickly in about a year, we built a deliverable system that was a low-profile, refined system for use in the Transportation Security Laboratory. And that system is currently being further evaluated against a wide range of scenarios and shoe types. And so how does this whole structure then get out into the marketplace? I guess there's a number of things that have to happen. Somebody has to make it commercially. And of course, TSA has to be convinced or convince themselves that it will work in their setting. And that's a pretty complicated set of eventualities. What are you doing to help get it commercialized? So we've currently licensed the technology to a commercial partner. We're excited with them to transition it into a product that can make it into the market. Um, Any decision to use the type of system that we're evaluating for uh, scanning shoes in the actual airports would, of course, be made by the uh, Transportation Security Administration. And do they test and otherwise consult with you in the development process, or do they wait till the commercial partner delivers a prototype? I mean, have they been there all along with you? We work very closely with them, and I expect them to work very closely with any acquired hardware to continue to understand what it can do and to uh, set the requirements going forward for any deployed system. And if someone else wants to license this because they think they can build a better mousetrap, will that intellectual property from PNNL be available to others? Eventually. Currently, it's a limited-term exclusive license, and after that term expires, uh, then it will be available. And by the way, how long does it take to test shoes when you stand on the platform? It takes approximately two seconds to scan the shoes. You can't even get flip-flops off and on that fast. (laughs) That's right. All right. And what's next for the lab? Sounds like you got a lot of interesting projects going on there. You're in the millimeter wave technology business specifically. Is that fair to say? That's true. So we are advancing the state of the art for millimeter wave technology in the area of national security. So we have a portfolio of projects that are examining different types of screening scenarios, looking at next generation imaging technologies to improve what's out in the airports today. As you know, we delivered the technology and licensed that for the original body scanners that are at the airport that was licensed by PNNL about 15 years ago. And so we've been working to develop the next generation of those systems to see what that would look like and to understand how that would improve detection capabilities. Is there kind of a holy grail that TSA is seeking in terms of scanning technology? I'll just make this up. You can be screened and scanned and okay from when you walk through the door in the airport as a kind of a Jetsons type of model. But is that how they look at things? Uh, Yes. Our sponsor is the Department of Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. And they have a screening at speed program 
that evaluates transformational technologies for that purpose. So this is really just a step, no pun intended, toward that ultimate goal of almost instantaneous screening if the technologies could be assembled to cause that. That's correct. Yeah, the the ideal goal is to have a set of technologies that can be applied to improve the passenger experience and to improve the convenience uh, going through the airport, but maintain the same security capabilities. And by the way, in the testing, and this will be my final question, did you really try to fool the machinery, like putting a tiny brad that you might mount a small picture on inside a shoe, that kind of thing? I mean, not everything necessarily has to be giant, a huge chunk of metal to be detectable. Yes, that's correct. We, in our initial testing, performed a wide variety of scenarios to understand what could be detected. The system has very good overall capabilities, but the specific types of threats that are able to be detected uh, are being evaluated currently by the TSL. All right. Mark Jones is a chief engineer at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. Yes, you're welcome. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? 
you know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at the time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who has, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned 
and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. SMS text, 9.32 p.m. Hey, man, I'm not home yet. Grabbing a quick drink with my lady friend, LOL. But just wait for me there, dude. The spare key is under the big gray planter by the garage. Peace. When you send messages on SMS, someone else could be reading them. With end-to-end -end encryption, WhatsApp ensures that your personal messages are your personal messages. WhatsApp. Always message privately. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.